Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network and through various other means that you are listening to us. This is half an hour on the radio or whatever else you're listening, where we talk about science. And on this week's show, we've got a special guest. Claire, do you want to tell us who is coming on the show? We do. We have Crystal DiNapoli, who is an astrophysics student. She's a Gamilaro woman, and she's going to talk to us all about Indigenous astronomy and um, and her research into Indigenous astronomy and also um, what she um, where she has oh, what she studied in astrophysics and um, and where you can learn a little bit more about um, the incredible incredible diversity of Indigenous science as well. Excellent. And I will be talking about a scary story from outer space. <laughs> well, not really. Um, some Polish scientists found some ants, some gruesome finds of some ants inside a nuclear oh. bunker. And what they had to do to survive their ordeal. Who, in the scientists? The no, the ants. Oh. Yeah. They're entomologists. So they were looking. They can handle ants. For, they can handle the ants. So, yeah, I'm going to be telling you the story of how the atomic age gave rise to these nuclear-powered ants. Wow. So stay tuned for that uh, later in the show. For 65,000 years, First Nations people across Australia have been observing the night sky to inform astronomy, astrophysics, geography, biology and climate knowledge. To talk about this knowledge and her own research, we have Gamilaroi woman and astrophysics student, as well as CSIRO intern, Crystal DiNapoli. Welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you. Now, Crystal, start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, your research, your interest in astrophysics. Yeah, I think like the most important thing to know is I'm just a big nerd. I really love maths and science. As um, we said before, this yes. is a nerd zone. This is a nerd zone. Nerds are safe here. <laughs> yeah. I, so I grew up in rural Victoria, first of my family to go to university. And so for me, this has whole bit like been a massive, I know it's like a learning experience for everyone because it's university, right? But, you know, moving to the city and everything, it's been sort of whew, a bit, bit crazy. So yeah, I started studying um, astrophysics at Monash, sort of took a chance on something that seemed like it'd be quite exciting for me. And turns out I love it. And so I'm near the end of my degree, thank God. <laughs> yeah, and I'm still just absolutely smitten with my studies. I do, yeah, quite a bit of um, research outside of my studies. And so that is on the topic of Indigenous science and Indigenous astronomy specifically. I am biased towards space. Now, um, 65,000 years, I mean, it is a very long time. So does this make Indigenous Australians the world's first astronomers? From from what we can see, we have, um, Indigenous Australians have the world's first evidence of astronomy taking place. So we have like a lot of oral traditions, which we can date back based on what the actual stories describe in terms of geography and astronomical events. So things like meteorite impacts, you know, if we hear about that in a story, we can actually date back that 
meteorite impact and tell from there. But also we have a lot of like rock formations. And so these are sites that are related to astronomy in one way or the other. One in particular is the Wadi Yuang Stone Arrangement. It's on Wathrong Country, which is part of the Kulin Nation, so close to Melbourne. And this actually relates to the winter and summer solstices. Mm. And this site, I know they're working on an age still, but current projections are over 10,000 years, which would date it as the oldest rock site for astronomy in the world. So yeah, wow. Aboriginal Australians seem to be world's first astronomers. <laughs> that is incredible. Now, you mentioned the Yuying site in the Kulin Nations. But can you take us through some other examples of Indigenous astronomy uh, identifying astronomical phenomena and how the knowledge is really applied? Yeah, awesome. So this, the, oh my goodness, as soon as like I hear questions like this as well, it's just my brain is flooded with different examples. <laughs> so I think like a really core example, which sort of helps, I guess, sort of set the tone and explain, you know, what an oral tradition is and what astronomy can actually tell us about our environment in general is the um, the dark sky constellation of the emu and so the emu is quite popular people tend to know about that first and it's for good reason um, essentially for different aboriginal countries across this continent the position of the emu throughout the year would actually tell them quite a bit about what was happening with the emu on the ground and this was to do with the actual emu egg harvesting season so knowing when chicks are forming and when the eggs are ready for collection and you know but it goes into further detail as well because it's also telling you about how the environment changes and what the emu does with that, how your own food source will change, how your water sources will change and how obviously the climate is changing throughout the year. The emu in the sky, that yep. refers to what we would sort of understand to be the Milky Way? Yes. So it, um, we're quite lucky here in the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> yeah, that we can see the Milky yeah, Way. Yeah, we have a really good view of it. And it's those dark areas of the Milky Way, that sort of gas and dust that block out a lot of light. Um, that's where we start to get these dark sky constellations. And so, yeah, they, they're quite common in Southern Hemispherean cultures. Mm. Um, but, yeah, you can see the emu shape. Um, its head is the Colsack Nebula for any space nerds out there. <laughs> um, I'm sure there are a few. Yeah, and, but I, I love that constellation because, to me, like it actually looks like an emu. And I think yeah. it's a, that's why I also think it's a great introduction because it's something that people can really just go out and see for themselves and – Especially if you learn that story behind it, you can go out there and see for yourself like, oh, okay, I know that the emu eggs are like ready for harvest now or the chicks are forming now. So depending on the position of the emu, you yep. can it isn't just, I guess, astronomical phenomena that you can you can talk about and the stars out there, but there's so much on the ground that you can relate to it. Yeah. And that's a really common thing. So the reason I highlight the fact that, oh, it relates to all these things on the ground is because that's the way indigenous science was practiced or is practiced. It's not necessarily like, a, okay, all our astronomy is in this little box over here and all of our, you know, biology is over here in this little box. Their stories are what they encode the science into. And they do it so that it's quite interdisciplinary. There is everything told in this one story. And so not only is it telling you about the environmental changes, the animal changes, the sky, the way it's changing, but also it's usually told in a story that communicates some sort of moral lesson as well. And so there's quite a lot of information that goes into these stories. And so it's a very different way of doing science than what we're probably used to with sort of like, you know, <laughs> breaking up into the different little groups of, all right, I'm an astronomer, but you're a biologist. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, the more challenging problems in our world become, the more we're told and the more um, the solution is to find diverse teams yeah. and to work together you know, to come up with solutions. So, it, you know, the future is interdisciplinary, right? We can't keep working in small little groups. Definitely. Especially for like quite a lot of those like wild, um, worldwide, you know, global issues. Um, I think we all need to come together. And I think that's a lesson you can really learn from the way Indigenous science is practised. Yeah. But then we, we have like other examples as well. So we have, um, you know, these stories um, which 
you know, describe crazy things like supernovas, which are the big fiery death of larger stars. And it's, mm, it's, sounds it, terrifying. <laughs> they're actually really cool. Like we are currently, we're pretty safe where we are. So if any one of these occurs and Betelgeuse, which is a star that people tend to know by name, at least that should go supernova sometime, maybe in our lifetime, you know, <gasps> tonight, maybe if we're lucky, maybe in 10,000 years, we'll see. But when it does, it won't necessarily harm us, but it's going to be a very pretty sight in the sky. So there's things like that that's very exciting. And they pop up in um, Aboriginal oral traditions. That's what we call the stories. But they also, um, in the same place, are then also seen and described by other ancient astronomers around the world in like a written text. And so that's an easy way as well for us to be able to date them back to. Because you see that sort of correlation. Yeah, so there's, there's a billion and one examples. <laughs> there's a billion and one examples. We've touched a bit on this, but why do you think that this knowledge and, and these oral traditions are so important now? I have a couple of different perspectives as to why I think it's important. One of the first one that really does jump out is sort of that correcting of the narrative. I know it's super, super common and I always, I'm starting to forget this whenever I do talks where I'm like, oh, I have to like backtrack and remember the level in which most Australians are at with their understanding of Indigenous culture. Because most people sort of have this idea that, you know, Indigenous Australians, they were nomadic wanderers. They didn't have agriculture or set homes, you know. I've heard they apparently couldn't count above four. And like the most bizarre, like, um, I guess, claims. And so that's why I think, for one, educating everyone on Indigenous science is important because I think it's a different way of looking at the culture and it will probably increase a lot of that respect. I think, um, yeah, well, obviously we've had quite a long time of trying to sort of push, I think, push back Indigenous knowledges. And then the other point is essentially what I was saying before, I think that sort of interdisciplinary, like holistic way of looking at your environment and everything is super important. And I think that's a lesson that everyone can really learn just in general, in everyday life. I feel like as well, um, quite a lot of Indigenous knowledge, it's not only just so applicable, right? So, you know, you're learning something that all of us can see, but we're learning knowledge that's very specific to this continent. A majority of the stuff that we do to this earth and the stuff that we've learned is all coming from overseas. And I think it's really important that we start listening to Indigenous Australians about, you know, for example, right, the fire safety with bushfires, you know, before colonisation, bushfires, at least the evidence from what we can see from actually cutting trees and seeing them, you can actually date back the bushfires and they all start around the 1800s. We don't have stuff really before it. And that's because of those preventative measures. And then also things like we should be looking into sustainable crops that are made for this land that we don't have to put excess effort into keeping alive because they just won't make this country. So... I feel like there's so much that we could really learn from Indigenous knowledges and that's why I think there should be quite a lot of like collaboration and support. And, and tell me, how does, how does that passion work in with what you're currently doing? To me, like astrophysics, right? It's sort of like, I guess, like that natural extension of what Indigenous astronomy is. I like being able to sort of take those perspectives, I guess, into my studies um, and try and not lose sight of that sort of, I guess, the way of communicating information, right? Um, Indigenous Australians, they communicate in these beautiful oral traditions, these stories, and it's something that's really accessible for, you know, the young ones to the old ones, depending on how you want to explain the information. These stories you can make as complicated or as simple as you want to. But then also what I'm doing specifically, I'm actually working a lot in the space of this sort of communication. Yeah. I love getting the word out. I love trying to educate the public. And, and you know, this almost sounds like a brag, but it's not a brag, right? It's to highlight how much people actually value it. If I start a talk, it usually sells out and it's because everyone's really interested. And it it's awesome to me. They have these people come along, be so enthusiastic to be able to talk with them. I love it. And also a lot of the work I'm doing now is helping create content for universities um, to be able to actually share that knowledge. share this knowledge so yeah. yeah it really is becoming my life and it's so funny because it's not necessarily specifically what I'm studying but it's definitely my passion so 
I feel like I'm quite lucky that I get to explore both where I have that nerdy behind the computer astrophysics sort of stuff but then I also really get to engage with the cultural astronomy that's really important to me. And you're doing an internship at CSIRO at the moment? Yes. Tell us about that. (laughs) So I worked there over the summer last year and it was a really interesting step into sort of new terrain. So yeah my background is you know like maths and astrophysics, I love space, all that sort of stuff. And so I turn up at CSIRO and I'm learning about granular materials and how to like essentially how to like use them in soft robotics and it was very different but it was actually awesome. Like I had so much fun with it. And then yeah, this this year I'm back. Had my first day today. Woohoo. Well done. <laughs> and I yeah, I have a new project which is really exciting and this is more using AR technology. So it's augmented reality. Augmented reality. So wow. it's not quite virtual reality where you have a whole headset and everything is you're feeling around in the dark. But it's some really cool stuff that you can it's at midpoint. It's really cool stuff essentially like you know shining your camera and being able to make things sort of Pop jump out. up on your phone that yes. look 3D and you can sort of manipulate. And so we have yeah, we have some potential there relating to astronomy and I'm so excited because it's like this time it's like ooh, it's more based on what I really enjoy. So I'm I'm really looking forward to the rest of the summer and seeing what that can produce for sure. Now I'm sure there's a lot of people out in Radioland who would love to learn more about Indigenous astronomy yep. um, but might not know where to look. Can you offer up some advice? Yes. Okay. So first of all, I think a really great starting point is we have a website. So it's www.aboriginalastronomy.com.au. That was created by uh, Dr. Dwayne Harmaker, who's just an incredible person overall. It's so accessible, that website. The information's been sorted into, you know, if you're looking for content. So maybe you want to learn more about, you know, the stars or maybe the sun or supernova in Indigenous astronomy. You can sort by those topics. But maybe you're specifically going, you know what, I want to learn more about Wurundjeri astronomy or Gamilaroi astronomy. And so they have it set out on a map too. And so... You can really explore um, quite a lot of information in a really easy, accessible way. And um, and locally as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's it's awesome. I, I love it personally as well because I really get to sort of hone in specifically on like my, you know, my family's roots of, oh, let's, yeah. I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit biased, <laughs> but it's passionately so. Um, but it's a great website. And then as well for anyone like on social media, we have a Facebook page, which is Australian Indigenous Astronomy. And we also have a Twitter which is at Aboriginal Astro, or you can follow me, <laughs> which is at Crystal Dinopoli. So, Crystal, can you talk about your current research in Aboriginal astronomy? Yes, I can. Um, so it's a topic I actually really love. Um, for, like, personal reasons, I'm, like, so I'm focusing on the Seven Sisters, the Pleiades. They are a beautiful little um, star cluster that pops up right around the world in a number of different um, astronomical traditions. Um, for me, I've always loved this constellation. My mum was always trying to point it out to me and I could not for the life of me see it, but I know it was one of her favourites. So this is like a <laughs> cluster of stars and yes. there's lots of stars Yes. and, um, and there's not a lot around them. Yep. But yeah, I, I, I know the one. I've, I always see it. I'm like, oh... Yeah, there they are. You, you know, it's a fun fact. I don't know if it's fun. Okay, like <laughs> keep in mind, I'm a space nerd, right? Um, but actually, like the Subaru cars, mm-hmm. um, they're like the Subaru. The Subaru logo. logo. Yeah, that's actually the seven sisters or those stars. Really? Subaru apparently means like, I think it's like the word for Pleiades in, I think, Japanese. Wow. But so, oh, very cool. So they pop fact. up a lot, right? Yeah. Um, so the seven sisters, um, which I guess is like the colloquial name. But yeah, anyway, the Pleiades, um, they pop up. Um, in a number of Aboriginal traditions as they do, they're, you know, they're an interesting object. Mm. Some of the reasons that they're interesting is because, you know, they're in that sort of empty space 
and they have that massive constellation of Orion relatively close by. Yeah. And the way that they actually go across the sky, it looks like that constellation of Orion's chasing them. And so since <laughs> Orion looks very obviously like a man, there are a number of stories where they're like, oh, these interesting characters, you know, this this crazy cluster full of all these stars that are twinkling brightly and, you know, this, this very defined constellation. Defined man chasing. Yes, <laughs> which is... Which is interesting because when you start looking at the stories about these stars um, all around the world, there are a lot of differences, right? Aboriginal Australia, it's, you know, absolutely um, like different interpretations right across the continent. But a number of these different places start to describe them as seven women or seven girls or seven sisters, which is it's really interesting. And I think there's obviously that is like a conversation and a half right there. But what makes them quite curious is that a number of these different groups will describe the number of stars changing. So sometimes we'll get like six sisters, sometimes seven, sometimes eight. Um, and what I'm currently researching is actually what's happening with that. Like, why do you have that fluctuation in the number of stars? Mm. And so there. And it isn't just because some people need glasses? No. So it's, it's really interesting because a number of different, um, this is a very common theme in a lot of Aboriginal oral traditions. Um, when they talk about the Seven Sisters, we frequently get, um, you know, depending on whatever object they're called, right, sisters or animals or whatever, we always hear about, you know, the youngest sister or the youngest object or the smallest object, you know, being harmed or something, something to happen to help them dim their light. And so this is like a common thing. It's not just, you know, oh, we're miscounting, but actually we're specifically seeing one of them sort of go away and then maybe come back over time. And the reason that that might be is because it could be a variable star present. And a variable star is? Yes. And so a variable star is a star that changes in brightness because um, stars, I know they look like they're twinkling, but actually pretty much majority of stars, they're actually very constant in their brightness. Like our sun, I mean, if our sun was twinkling as as commonly, that would probably be very disastrous for life on Earth. <laughs> but yeah, so they're, they're quite they're quite consistent. But we do get this subgroup of stars that actually change in brightness over time. Um, there are a number of different reasons for why this might occur. Essentially, it's just sort of getting colder and getting like dimmer, and then getting hotter and getting brighter. Um, and so yeah, it, there is a variable star present in that cluster, which is really interesting. And so it's something that I'm looking into further. And yeah. Crystal, that is fascinating. I hope that you can come back on Lost in Science and talk us through um, how your research is going with variable stars and your internship at CSIRO. Um, But for now, thank you so much for joining us on Lost in Science. And I really encourage anyone out there to head to aboriginalastronomy.com.au and definitely follow Crystal DiNapoli on Twitter because you are awesome. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. probably spend more time than absolutely necessary watching 
old movies and you guys probably put up with me talking about them all the time. Oh, I didn't even know. Didn't like, even notice. Didn't even know that you spent a lot of time watching old movies. When we say old movies, what's your what's your um, era of choice? Yeah, what's your threat? Well, look, it, it depends. I have I have a vast collection of physical media because I don't see the point in throwing it away now. I've bought it all. But, you know, like old movies from the 50s and, and from the 60s and from the 70s and from the 80s and from the 90s. <laughs> They're all old. The classics. Of yeah, the, the classic hits of movies. But uh, particularly <laughs> old science fiction movies because, you know, um, it's interesting to see how people of the past imagined the world of the future. <laughs> um, but also because they're just really silly a lot of times and just fun to watch because they're yeah. ridiculous. Sometimes they're bang on though. Oh, sometimes. Not often, but sometimes. <laughs> uh, one of the most um, iconic post-atomic science fiction concepts is that of the giant irradiated monster. You probably come across this idea that something grows massive because it got exposed to radioactivity from an atomic bomb. As and opposed to being Godzilla. killed by the radiation. Well, like yeah. like would actually probably yeah. happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Godzilla comes to mind. Yeah, Godzilla. Yeah. But uh, how about um, giant uh, insects? Mothra? Was it them, the ants? That's exactly the one I'm thinking of. So... Um, radioactivity obviously doesn't work that way, but an early example is a film called Them, complete with an exclamation mark in the title. So it's not just them, it's them. 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 Yeah. <laughs> them ants. Um, dim. Like dim. Them, them, them big old ants. Um, so this film tells the story of giant, gigantic radioactive ants. Some would, say, some would say giant ants. You could have made that. As a you know proposal to call it this yeah, giant ants. Some, some would call them brillants, brillants, hmm. brilli ants. Yeah. Um, so the ants manage to breed in the desert near an early atomic test site, and then they make their way to Los Angeles, presumably with the intention of eating people. Uh, it's not really that clear in the film <laughs> why people or are worried. They're just gigantic ants. Maybe previously some other giant ants had put down some chemicals, um, and they were just following the line. As well, that's ants I want to do. Yeah, maybe they're just following pheromones yeah. trails to the exactly. to the coast, um, or they're just looking for water. I mean, they're in the desert, so maybe yeah. they just wanted it's a drink. It's not great for ants. So the army gets called in, and they don't get to eat anyone. But a scientist <laughs> at the end says, quite philosophically, he says, "When man entered the atomic age, he opened the door to a new world. What we may eventually find in that new world, nobody can predict." Giant ants. Oh, well, I mean, you know, yeah. that is kind of the point of science, though, isn't it? To predict things, and yeah. that's kind of what he should have been doing with his job. But uh, so, obviously, gigantic ants are an impossibility. They're a biological impossibility. Um, ant biology doesn't allow them or any other insects to grow to car size, and that's kind of the size they were in the film. <laughs> right. They just can't get that big because they wouldn't be able to breathe enough oxygen because they breathe through their uh, spiracles. I breathe through my spiracles. Do you? Do you? Since you came along, giant ant. Thing. <laughs> um, so that, that's 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 not going to be predicted because that's not possible for it to happen. But some Polish scientists opened the door on some ants recently <laughs> that owe their particular predicament to the atomic age in a way that nobody could have predicted. What? So. While these Polish scientists were exploring an abandoned facility designed during the Cold War for the storage of nuclear weapons. <gasps> Ant-Man flew out. No, he doesn't have wings. 
Oh. <laughs> um, but they did discover a colony of ants that had been locked inside since the bunker was closed. Wow. And that raised a whole bunch of questions. Like, what so were they eating? That is the first question. Well, the first question was how they got in there. So it seemed to be, but they fell down a ventilation shaft into oh. the bunker and then they couldn't get out. So the ants were just stuck in this, in this, you know, nuclear age bunker Quick and they couldn't the get out of there. Um, it wasn't, was it wasn't actually radioactive. It was just that they couldn't get out. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, it wasn't radioactive. No, 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 no. That probably would have just killed them. Um, so they should have, what, what they first thought was, how did they get in there? They figured out, but then they did think, well, what have they been eating while they're down here, while they've been locked in here? So they should have expected to find some living ants and a lot more ant bodies that had fallen down the shaft. Um, and they didn't find any queen ants or evidence of the ants breeding in the bunker. There was just a whole bunch of ants just down in the in the uh, bunker locked in. So there they was... fre- fresh ants that had just fallen down there? Well, they something? thought that some of them had just fallen down and some of them had been in there for quite some time. But uh, there were a lot of dead ants in there, but only about twice as many dead ants as there were live ants. So they found about two million dead ant bodies and a million living ants. So they were eating ants. They pretty much were probably eating each other. So this particular ant they found is called a red wood ant, which is Formica polyctina, which is a very territorial ant found in Eastern Europe, which has a pretty gruesome habit. When they uh, so Eastern Europe gets very cold in the winter, and ants basically don't do anything. They go into their nests and stop. Bunker down. Stop. So yeah, they basically bunker down. Um, and they, well, there's no food around because it's frozen, basically. Uh, so they increase their colony in spring and they're really super territorial uh, and they have gigantic intercolony ant wars to establish the boundary of each colony. So they go out and fight each other and kill each other. And then when the, when the ant wars are all over, they drag all of their dead back to the colony and feed them to the baby ants. Wow. wow. Someone needs to the make a inf- movie about ants. this. Yeah. The, the inf ants. The inf ants. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so the Polish scientists wondered, did the ants in the bunker do the same thing? And it's, look, it's not all that surprising. Sure enough, they collected a whole lot of ant corpses and discovered about 93% had signs of cannibalism that the other ants had eaten the bodies of these uh, of these dead ants. How hard is it to do a antopsy? Well, autopsy. They did. They did go into some specific detail. They said, "Oh, it was a binocular microscope," and they've got all like all the details. They did a proper uh, pu- publish a proper paper on all this. Wow, the reason so is they, they look at they look they see teeth marks in the ant and go, mm, "I wonder what did this." Well, <laughs> yeah, mandible mandible marks in yeah. the ants, and in, and they basically only ate the abdomen of the other ants because that was you know where all of the nutrition was apparently. But they were you know they're they're actual entomologists, so that what they're interested in was is this a way that ant colonies can survive when there's no other food sources? And there might be situations where that actually helps with ant survival. And there hadn't actually been any evidence other than their ant wars Mm. that, you know, in social insects, they went, oh, we didn't really know if cannibalism was a widespread thing or not, but they've just discovered that actually it is something that ants can commonly do 
to stay alive, even when you think, well, maybe they should have already died. But obviously this only worked because new ants kept falling down yeah. the hole. Yeah. Nicely, there's a happy ending to this story. The scientists put a big wooden plank <laughs> from the floor to the ventilation shaft so the ants could finally get out of their bunker and rejoin their colony on the surface. To which they marauded and ate all the other ants in the world. <laughs> Probably not that bad. Once you get a taste for ants, though. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.